We made our way through verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, and I mean, pretty, pretty basic stuff. We saw the following. You used to be dead in your sin. Uh, you are now made alive by God, and your sin and the record of the debt because of your sin that stood against you was nailed to the cross in the person and, and work of Jesus Christ. This means that whatever needed to be removed from you in order for you to be pleasing to God was already removed. So Paul makes reference to the circumcision and he makes reference to baptism. And these things are um, kind of illustrations of spiritual realities. So uh, if whatever has been removed from you in order for you to be in relationship with your creator, if whatever has been removed from you in order for you to be in relationship with your creator has already been removed, and whatever needed to be done for you to be in relationship with your creator as far as the addition of something has already been accomplished, then we can take it to the bank. We don't add anything, and we can't take anything away from ourselves in our presentation of us to God. We are made acceptable in the, the moment we are made alive because we're made alive by God in Christ, and all that needs to happen is done in those moments where life is breathed into us. So then the flow of Colossians 2, 6 through 14 would work something like this. One, this is verse six. Walk with Christ as you have received him. So how do you receive Christ? Well, I received him by faith. I believed in the heart and with my mind and spoke words with my mouth that, that dictate um, Jesus is Lord of all creation, right? So that was the initiation of my faith. And 300 weeks later, it's the continue, it's like how you do it today. Walk with him the way you came to him. That's verse six. There's nothing, it's, there's nothing new and shiny. Even if you go to summer camp and, and you've, it feels different, right? Or you have some experience and it feels different. It's still walk with Jesus the way you started walking with Jesus. And I'm all for those experiences that take us to the height. I don't mean to, I'm not trying to demean that at all. All right. Um, next, don't become the spoils of someone else's slave trade. This happens when we are deceived into believing something in addition to faith is required for salvation. That's how we become enslaved. Um, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ, and he has filled you in himself. A lot of prepositions there. Basically, um, I think what I said <clears throat> when I preached that message was, it would make more sense uh, just in terms of grammar if the text said, he has filled you with, or he has filled you uh, through himself. But instead it says he's filled you in himself. And the... the the way that I would illustrate that, if I have to illustrate it, would be if you take a, a glass and you fill it with water, it's full, right? But if you take a glass and you put it in a swimming pool, it's also full, but it, there's an incomprehensibly overflowing supply, right? So that Jesus fills us in himself means we don't... like. We don't have to contain deity. 
and only be limited to the thimbleful that we can contain because he's got us in him. So it's, it's, it's what we, it's how we live and move and breathe in Christ. Okay. Um, What needed to be removed from you was removed. What needed to be provided for you to have fellowship was provided. And and therefore you can't add to the work of Jesus Christ by the observation of religious rules or through religious activity. So that's 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We're done. This brings us to 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is Colossians 2, 15. Please tell me I included it in the... Yay. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul loves for everything to be in him, right? This is a recurring theme in all of his writings. Here, he triumphed over rulers and authorities and disarmed them in him. I think most of you are probably familiar, like if you've been to vacation Bible school or I don't know where kids hear this for the first time, but you're probably familiar uh, with this idea from Roman, Roman <clears throat> history that, <clears throat> excuse me, when Rome finished conquering uh, a, a nation or a little kingdom or a little fiefdom or whatever, uh, part and parcel to the triumphal procession at the end, once, once the battles were all fought and the enemy had been vanquished and the people had been conquered, there'd be a parade, right? And you've got your general who led them and all the soldiers who did feats of great power, glory, would march in this parade. But then at the end of the parade, you would have literally the defeated foe, uh, the king, the prince, the ruler, whoever, in slave garb being dragged behind the parade, right? So, to to so that they could be put to open shame. And the idea was, and it's effective, Rome wanted people to understand, listen, if you defy us, this will be your end. Not just defeat, shame. And then, and then we'll kill you in the most horrific way imaginable, right? <clears throat> I mean, that would demoralize you if you were thinking about fighting against Rome. Okay. Thankfully, we live in a much more civilized day and age, right? You might want to pause if you're thinking of defying the government because your end could be so inglorious and pathetic that those who witness your final march, if they remember you at all, will just laugh at you. And then, I don't know, just on a giant tangential side note, it gives me a little bit of pause about who I laugh at in the news. Uh, so anyway, the first, the first that was so had nothing to do with this message. Uh, the first and obvious point of application today, then, <clears throat> with everything else that we've already covered, would be this: What power do the devil or his minions have in your life if the place that he occupies is that of defeated foe? Um, he can speak. He can spit, he can grimace, he can even scream and yell. Um, but he's been put to open shame. He's been triumphed over. He can't do anything unless Jesus permits him to. <clears throat> right? Okay. Jesus disarmed, I'm putting that in quotes because the word here is an interesting one. 
We only find this word, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, one other place in the New Testament, and it's in the very next chapter in Colossians 3, 9, <clears throat> where he says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So you have put off the old, put off is the same word from which we get disarmed in 2.15. Um, and the, the idea uh, being communicated is that, is that like, in three nine, it's you're doing it, right? You've, you've put off the old self, but in 2.15, it's Jesus. Did, he, like, the way that you would put something off of you, that's how effectively he puts off the armament of the, the oppressor and opposer and the liar and the accuser of the brethren. Jesus has disarmed him like, it's, it's kind of vivid imagery, right? <clears throat> the idea being communicated here that Jesus removed the, the weaponry of our enemies cannot be taken to mean the literal, physical, temporal enemies of the church that exist in the world, right? Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces which oppose the church. And that he has done that is elsewhere explained in Scripture. So if you look at Hebrews 2, real quick. Keep my eye out for the Christian cat. See if it makes an appearance again this week. Uh, there is no such thing, by the way. <laughs> Hebrews 2, 14. That small group we were talking about, uh, uh, Mark Dever said in his book, he said uh, that he had a life verse, right? And my dad was leading small group discussion Tuesday, and he asked if anybody in the room had a life verse. I used to think that I did, but it also changed pretty much weekly based on whatever I was reading. And this one, if, if I were going to have one... <clears throat> This one would be a, a real contender. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, <clears throat> and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Um. In John 12, 31, <clears throat> the disciple that Jesus loves writes, says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus um, was not being hyperbolic. And Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 is not making a proclamation about a future event. It's already happened. The devil's already been cast down. Revelation 12, 9 describes it in vivid imagery. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. What, <clears throat> what Jesus took away from the ruler of this world then, was the ability to accuse us, the ability to hold us bondage to sin, and to cow us with the fear of death. 
might be worth writing those things down. Jesus took away from the devil the ability to accuse you. That doesn't mean that he can't still. The devil can accuse you as much as he wants. He still has the ability to think and speak and, and point out to you your own insufficiencies. He certainly does. If the devil could show up in this room right now, he would happily tell all of you the deepest, darkest things about me if for no other reason than you would cease to listen to me ever again, right? He can't do that, but he can tell me the deepest, darkest things about myself. And he can do the same thing to you when you're laying in bed trying to go to sleep at night. Why everything that's broken in your life is your own fault. He can do that. But on the day of judgment, when the accuser steps forward to accuse you to the judge, he will be silenced because Christ has removed that power from him by, what did Hebrews uh, 2.14 say? Destroying the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the judgment of the world, John 12, 31. The ruler of this world has been cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He doesn't have the ability to accuse you to the judge anymore. He doesn't have the ability to hold you in bondage to sin, and he can't cow you with the fear of death, because what happens when you die? Well, I'm going to go be with Jesus, and I'll be just like him. And I'm not looking forward to the way in which that happens because I'm assuming it will involve some pants wetting and humiliating stuff, right? I don't want to go out the way I came in, unaware. Nobody wants that. Or horrifically in an accident where for a few milliseconds I know that this is the end. Like those things conjure up fearfulness in my heart, of course. But... I can go past that moment in my own mind and go, eh, and then, uh, you know, after that horror is over with, I'm going to be in glory such that I won't even be able to recall the misery of this life. Jesus has taken the power of the devil to hold me in fear of death. All right, so rulers and authorities, <clears throat> back in Colossians 2.15, rulers and authorities is a reference to that spiritual enemy. And as we move along this morning, we'll see it as a reference to those who operate with the intention of putting us back into bondage. And that'll be more fun than this is right now um, for some of you. What we need to glean from this verse is very simple. Jesus holds the power and authority and nobody can act except that he allows them to, period. Here's a truth against which the whole world kicks and and foams at the mouth, but the the enemies of God, spiritual and temporal, kick and foam with with feet and shackles and mouths without teeth. They they can't do anything except he allows them to. So um, now let's see why I attach 15 to 16 rather than 14, the way most of our Bibles format it. And do you have 15 as like There's a paragraph break after 15 with a heading. Yeah. I think this makes more sense. Since 15, right? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first word, depending on what translation you're using, is either so or therefore, or it's within the first five words. You'll see so or therefore. I need us to bear this in mind as we go along. Since Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, since that happened, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. No one is to act as your judge in regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. If I preach, good night. If I preach a sermon on the subject of legalism, every time we come across it in the scriptures, um, it's likely we're going to hear it probably uh, this topic once a year or so because we saw it in Galatians, we saw it in James, and we're seeing it in Colossians. So if you, like if you're, maybe I'm projecting, uh, but if you think James really has an ax to grind when it comes to legalism, I would cite the intervening messages that I preach as evidence that this isn't just my favorite topic to talk about. It just keeps coming up and I'm going to preach it because it's here. This isn't, this is not me uh, working out the wounds that I bear as a result of my history in the church. Okay. Um, I just think it's here. So we need to hear it. The fact of the matter is You can't stop anyone from from, uh, pronouncing judgment on you in regards to what you eat or drink or a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You can't. So the instruction isn't so much don't let anyone pass judgment on you as it is don't be intimidated when they do it. Okay? Discipleship ceases. Discipleship. I I just want to say the word. Uh, Discipleship ceases, right? The moment you are made to feel like you're always a disappointment to those who have leadership. That's not discipleship. What takes the place of discipleship, the moment that you're made to feel like you are always a disappointment to your leaders, what, what takes place The place of discipleship should be called by its proper name. Robbery, thievery, piracy, enslavement, poaching, kidnapping. Like put in one of these words because it's not discipleship anymore. Um, When a pastor applies pressure to his congregation, which is outside, even a little bit, the bounds of what's clearly taught in Scripture, he ceases to become Well, he ceases to be a pastor and in in that moment, and maybe not in the totality of who he is, but in that moment where he's falsely applying pressure, he becomes a wolf. He's no longer a shepherd. In Colossae, you have either one or many, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else does either, you have either one or many uh, teachers who are suggesting to the church that something other than faith in Jesus Christ is required for salvation. Or you've got them suggesting to the church that, that something other than faith in Jesus Christ is required for like the full blessing of salvation. 
Evidently, they needed to abstain from certain foods or drinks. Evidently, they needed to observe certain festivals. Evidently, they needed to observe certain astrological events and keep certain Sabbaths. In our culture, I think it looks a little bit different than that. It's because we're not, <clears throat> we're not a Jewish community, right? So it's got to take on a different expression. So here's a list of what I've seen people seek to act as someone else's judge over. And I told you this would be more fun than the beginning of the sermon. <clears throat> Length of hair, every conceivable measurement of someone's clothing, color of clothing, the wearing of jewelry, attendance of evening service, it's not going to help um, unless it's got pepper in it. <clears throat> Whatever this is, it's getting worse the more I breathe. It's the Canadian wildfires. Um, <clears throat> attendance of evening service, attendance of a weeknight Bible study, what styles of music are permissible, foods, drinks, dancing, women speaking in church, not preaching, speaking, uh, which friends you are allowed to have, who you follow on social media, which social media followers, followers you are allowed to have. To, to have, who you are allowed to invite to a party, who you're allowed to go to lunch with, who you are allowed to invite to your home, whose home you're allowed to visit, playing cards, who should be allowed to rent a space for a business, who can be a customer at your business, and my all-time favorite, who should be invited to a wedding, a funeral, or other church-related event. Um, and if you'd like me to cite my sources, I would be happy to do so in private, but for your edification in the interim, just go on YouTube and search for IFB Preacher, Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Preacher. There's a couple of them in Nebraska, um, and you will get a, a perfect example of the kind of legalism that I'm talking about. Uh, this is why I'm so fearful of preaching angry. And when I catch myself doing it, I want to curl up and die in a hole somewhere and never preach again because you know, I might get frustrated when I'm up here with myself and my inability to string together coherent thoughts and sentences, but I don't ever want it to come out like I'm mad at you and I'm trying to berate you and I'm trying to browbeat you and I'm trying to get you to stop because it's not like that's not why we're here, right? So the question is this, uh, why would, this is important, it's so important that I'm going to promise to repeat it again before this sermon's over, <clears throat> the answer to this question. Why would anyone allow another human being to dictate things like who can and can't go to lunch with you? Why would anybody allow another human being to dictate what color their clothing should be? And the answer, or things like that, right? And the answer is twofold. Part one and then part two, and, it, and they work in sequence, right? So part one is this. Something critical has to be missing from your walk with God, or your walk with God is missing altogether, and so what you're doing is filling up what is lacking by seeking the approval of other people. That's part one. Part two is there are wolves, robbers, pirates, thieves, and slavers who long to hold power over other people, and they know that religion makes as good a chain as any to bind somebody with. So in Mark 7... <clears throat> 
verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. This is why the Holy Spirit, now I'm talking, this isn't the Bible anymore, lest you fail to detect the transition. This is why the Holy Spirit is telling you that no one is to act as your judge in regards to food, drink, festival, or Sabbath. There's one lawgiver and judge and he nailed the record of debt against you to the cross in his son. Nobody gets to take it down and start using it again. Um, <clears throat> now, the legalist will retort and I have to give them the floor here for just a second so that I can build other straw men and knock them down. I'm just joking. Uh, the legalist will retort, some of these things aren't bad, though. Like, the things that the legalist advocates for aren't bad. Like, think of, of the, the health benefits of abstaining from alcohol. How many more brain cells would you have if you had just never touched this stuff? It's, uh, it's an, for me, an uncountable number, right? Um, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. So that's a legalist retort, just so you know. Um, <clears throat> holiness must be maintained. So these are reasonable prohibitions for in the confines of the church, lest... Men be caused to stumble, or women. And the legalists would retort, if, if we did things the way James is suggesting we do them, people are going to go buck wild. That's the retort. And perhaps they will, perhaps they will, and thus reveal that they haven't been converted at all. And now we know how to pray for them. Now we know how to weep with them. Now we know how to talk to them. Better than that, we can persuade them to believe in the only one who can rescue their soul from sin. Because getting somebody into submission to moralistic lostness is not my aim. Uh... I don't disagree that society would be better off that if people observed the Ten Commandments. I, I think it would be great. And I'm not a hypocrite. The Ten Commandments are clearly commanded. That's in the bounds of what the Scriptures command. Whether you wear a suit and tie to church or an ankle-length dress is not. It's just not there. Yes, it is. You should bring your best to God. Okay. That's subjective. I don't get to decide what that is for you. You've got to decide what that is for you. And the moment somebody steps into the space of deciding things like that for you, you should recoil. 
What does the moral law of God have to do with whether or not you wear a suit? What does God's clear commandment to believe in Jesus Christ have to do with, you know, your hurt feelings over somebody being less than cordial to you? Let me run everything because I've got hurt feelings. Well, and here's the part that kills me about that, right? The person who hurt you shows up at church and you're angry about it. Like, if the preacher is worth anything, what are they going to hear now that they've showed up to church? The gospel. And what will the outcome of that be? Well, they'll either be made uncomfortable and not come back, or they'll be made uncomfortable and bend a knee to King Jesus and repent, and their life will be changed forever. Why are you mad that somebody's at church dressed a certain way, too many tattoos, smell like booze from the night before? Like, I, I, come on in. Make it weird for me. I'm, I'm ready for it. You guys know this, right? <laughs> what does God's directive, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him, have to do, what does that have to do with whether or not I enjoy a glass of wine or play a round of golf on a Sunday or my daughters wear shorts more than an inch above their knees or you decide not to come to small group because you're exhausted, Or you see someone from church smoking tobacco or someone decides to have a Christmas tree. Like, none of these things really matter. Good heavens, if we ever got to get a hold of this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards or in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Do not give authority to someone else from whom Christ has taken it. It's his. Don't give rule and power and and weaponry to someone whom Christ has disarmed. Don't do that. Let no one pass judgment on you as it relates to issues which are not clearly laid out in the word of God. Again, why would a Christian be intimidated by a browbeating preacher or teacher? Two things have to happen. First, Something critical is missing from your own walk with God or your walk with God is missing. And so you're trying to fill up what's lacking by getting approval from other people. Part two, there are wolves, robbers, and slavers, and pirates who long to hold power over other people and are happy to do it with a suit and tie on on a Sunday morning, hollering and yelling and sweating into a hanky from a pulpit. They're happy to do it that way. And they're usually overweight, strangely enough. That was, like, I mean, in general, go look. You'll see what I mean. It's a fascinating thing. Like, the only thing they don't talk about is gluttony. All the other sins. Anyway, our nation is celebrating Juneteenth this week. And I'm frustrated by so-called conservatives who uh, oppose this holiday, saying things like, July 4th is this country's Independence Day, and we don't need another one. Um, Okay. The Constitution from uh, 1787, when it was, I believe, ratified, until 1863, uh, counted slaves as three-fifths of a human being and prohibited them from becoming free by crossing state lines. Like, it was specifically in there. They, They couldn't do that. While the Declaration of Independence declared with a straight face that all men were created equal. 
Okay, that happened. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation, which was issued on January 1st, 1863, did not free the vast majority of slaves. It didn't. A war had to be fought to accomplish that. And I know, I know, oh, the war wasn't about slavery. It was, I know. And the whole abolition thing was added later because it, you know, garnered support for the Union. Guess what? Slavery was evil, and one of the outcomes of the Civil War was the abolition of slavery. So here's the thing. Many slaves had no idea that they had been declared set free, and for those who did know, it didn't make a hill of beans a difference because their state hadn't been defeated by the Union yet, right? So from January 1, 1863, until sure defeat had been accomplished for any Confederate state that was still uh, guarding slaves, the enslaved people's lives didn't change at all. What Juneteenth is a commemoration of is in, on June 19th, 1866, kind of the furthest point south, Galveston, Texas, uh, a major general, Gordon something or another, I can't remember his name, issued a, a dictate that the slaves in Galveston were free. Then there had to be this passage of time where word got out. You couldn't just tweet it, right? So word had to get out the long way, the slow way to all these people that they were free. Now, I read you guys an excerpt from um, the, the National Archives uh, uh, Black Slaves uh, accounts a few months ago, um, and one of the things that you can find in there is this idea, like they were told they were free, and then they just didn't buy it. They're like, mm -hmm, yeah, I'm going to run off so I can get beat some more. No thanks, right? So it was a thing. They had to be convinced of their freedom. It wasn't, they didn't just open the paper and go, well, I'll be. Guess I'll go get a job. It was a, it was a long and complex uh, uh, yet process and, and a lot of argumentation had to be made. So from June uh, 19th, 1866, back to January 1st, 1863, the day the Emancipation Proclamation happened, you've got 1,266 days, 40 months And then they were freed. Then they were freed. I have zero problem with Juneteenth. And here's my point. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It doesn't matter if you're free when you don't know that you're free. And Old Testament ceremonies were a shadow, an image, a depiction of what was ultimately going to come and what is actually far better. Jesus is superior. Listen, Jesus is superior to the Old Testament law. It, he didn't come to abolish the, the moral law, but to fulfill it. But he is superior to it. He is the substance to which the Old Testament law points. He freed those in bondage to sin and in bondage, therefore, to the law. Right? It doesn't matter that you're free if you don't know that you're free. 
And maybe a war needs to get fought to let you know that you're free and that nobody can, can pass judgment on you anymore. Like you're not in bondage to my opinion of anything other than what's clearly commanded here. And what have I been saying now for almost two years, I believe is said in the word of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commandments. And everything else falls up under that umbrella. Like if, you, if you're doing those things, the rest of it tends to take care of itself. And how do you love God? By believing in Jesus Christ. What are the works of God that we may do them? Believe in Jesus Christ and whom he has sent. That, like that's it. We can cut the, 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 the cord off right there and just say this far and no further. That's all I need to let you know. To believe in Jesus Christ, to put your whole faith, your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole body, your whole soul into believing Jesus Christ and so be saved from your sin. Wicked men will take advantage of your ignorance. If you don't know you're free, wicked men will take advantage of it by keeping you enslaved in order to enrich themselves. When you allow someone to intimidate you, to act as your judge in regards to things which are not clearly defined in your Bible, you're like those slaves who didn't know they were free yet. The shadow had come, but the substance hadn't. And the word of God is telling you right now that you're free. If I or one of the elders or teachers in this church tries to tell you otherwise, like who you can or can't associate with, remember you're free. If we try to tell you how to dress, remember you're free. If we try to tell you what to eat, remember you're free. If we try to tell you what to drink, remember you're free. If we try to tell you who to vote for, remember you're free. If we try to tell you everything we've ever been right about, remember you're free. You're free. Nobody can be your judge except for Jesus Christ. The substance is Christ. So we have this um, directive from him to remember him in this particular way, where we've got the bread, which represents the body of Christ, which was broken for sins, uh, which we've committed. And then you have this cup, which represents the blood of Christ, which was poured out in order to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The way that 1 John 1, 9 puts it is, if we confess our sins, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to do both things, forgive you and cleanse you, body and bread, forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So the call of Christ to you is, do this in remembrance of me because he knows we're forgetful people. And what will happen sometimes when you go to take Lord's Supper is things will come to mind that you need to acknowledge and be forgiven afresh for, right? And sometimes when you're taking Lord's Supper, things will come to mind that you just are overwhelmed with gratitude that God has taken care of in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and this morning, it should be easy. This morning, it should be easy. You should be like, oh, that I'm free. I'm free. Nobody can take that from me. So I'm going to put on some music just to cover the shuffling of feet and the bonking and the chairs and then let you have some privacy while you're praying. And the way we do it here is we like family units to gather together. And, and dad, it's just another chance to be the spiritual leader in your home and administer the elements to your family and um, practice family prayer. If you're not with um, 
or mom, by the way, if you're not with your family and you want to gather with, you can gather with one of the elders. I mean, you can literally roll up to anybody else in this place and they will take care of you. But the elders are uh, myself, Lee Smith in the back in the blue shirt, and then Rick, there's Rick, and Matt is right here, and then Cecil's in the green. You guys all have nice primary colors going on here. Um, so just tap them, and, and they'll be happy to pray with you or jump in with me when my family goes. Um, and once I think everybody that's going to go has gone, we'll sing one more song and be done. Here's the only restriction. If you do not have a relationship if you're not in relationship with your Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, I would ask you to refrain from eating and drinking because the Bible says that if we, if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And I don't frankly know all that that means, but it's probably not a good thing. And it'd be better if you just sit, sit quietly and get to know um, the one who has ransomed and redeemed your soul from sin. Okay? All right, so let me pray and we'll get started. Father, thanks for your word. And the incomprehensible difference that it makes in our lives. We pray for these next few minutes as we observe the, the ordinance of communion as you've commanded. That you would be pleased, Holy Spirit, to move in this room in a way that encourages all of us on this Father's Day. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.